pareciera abrirse en el horizonte una nueva etapa de relaciones de paz, de hermandad y de cooperación con Colombia. Pido el apoyo de toda la sociedad venezolana para que lo logremos. La hermandad, la cooperación y la unión de Colombia y Venezuela en una nueva etapa. President Nicolás Maduro of Venezuela and President Gustavo Petro of Colombia announced that the border between the two countries, after being shuttered for years, would officially reopen on September 26th. The decision to reopen the border represents yet another step in the restoration of diplomatic relations between Venezuela and Colombia following the arrival of Petro to the presidency, as the two neighbors worked to turn back the clock on years of strained relations under previous administrations. This latest move is not only symbolic, but also represents a significant opportunity for economic development that wasn't possible before. The issue is whether this economic activity will translate into improvements in the well-being of the people on both sides of the border. Welcome to the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings independent, on-the-ground, English-language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. You'll hear news and in-depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftist and grassroots forces. On today's program, we're looking at the restoration of diplomatic and economic relations between Venezuela and Colombia, and what the future holds for the bilateral relationship. In his inauguration speech, President Gustavo Petro made references to a number of Latin American historical figures who pushed for integration, including Simón Bolívar, the 19th century independence leader who was widely celebrated in both Colombia and Venezuela. In a move laden with symbolism, after being sworn in as president of Colombia, he interrupted his own ceremony in order to have the original sword of Bolívar brought to the square. In his speech, he told the crowd, quote, Let's make that unity dreamed of by our heroes like Bolívar, San Martín, Artigas, Sucre, and O'Higgins a reality. It is not a utopia, nor is it romanticism. It is the way to make us strong in this complex world. End quote. Since then, the governments in Colombia and Venezuela have taken major steps to build that unity. In addition to reopening the border, flights between the two countries are expected to resume. Petro has taken steps to return Monómeros, considered Venezuela's second most important foreign asset, and both governments have named and accepted their respective ambassadors. Colombian Ambassador Venezuela, Armando Benedetti, has vowed that restored diplomatic relations will benefit 8 million Colombians and that formal cross-border trade could eventually reach U.S. $10 billion. The restoration of diplomatic relations is also expected to deliver material benefits to the millions of Venezuelans living in Colombia, as well as the millions of Colombians in Venezuela who had been deprived of consular services for years. However, the effort to reestablish commercial ties has largely been driven by business sectors in both countries. The Venezuelan business chamber in the border state of Táchira celebrated a border agreement that was signed in early July with their Colombian counterparts. And in light of U.S.-led sanctions that have severely hampered Venezuela's economic development, the Maduro government has looked to boost trade and economic activity in the border region. The Venezuelan National Assembly recently approved legislation establishing special economic zones in the country. Economic actors in both countries are interested in the creation of a special economic zone in the border area. Caracas estimates border trade will reach U.S. $2 billion in the near future. The question is, will this economic activity translate into improvements in the well-being of people on both sides of the border? To talk about the new horizon for the Venezuela-Colombia relationship, we will speak with Enrique Costa, a researcher with the Center for Border and Research Studies. But first, a conversation with Venezuela analysis Andreina Chavez, 
about the historic bonds between Venezuela and Colombia, the efforts to roll back xenophobic attitudes toward Venezuelans abroad, and what we might expect of U.S. imperialism in light of the restoration of diplomatic ties. Hi, Andrina. Welcome to the program. It's good to have you, as always. Today, we're talking about the Colombia-Venezuela bilateral relationship. And I've been writing a lot about Colombia lately, and for a recent piece about Monomeros, which is the agricultural producer that was once called Venezuela's second most important asset, I came across an interesting bit of history. I learned that it was founded in 1967 by two presidents, Carlos Lleras Restrepo of Colombia and Raúl Leoni of Venezuela, as a show of bond between the two countries. This company, which is now at the center of efforts to restore diplomatic and economic relations between the two countries, I think in some ways is a perfect example of the complexity of the bilateral relationship. And then while I think the differences between the two peoples of Venezuela and Colombia have been exaggerated for political reasons in the 21st century, I think particularly during the years where we had Uribe in Colombia and Chavez in Venezuela, and obviously most recently with Duque and his support for the self-proclaimed presidency of Juan Maidó, this is actually a historic relationship. It's one that spans centuries. Can you explain to the audience these bonds between Venezuela and Colombia? Hello, Jose Luis. Thank you for having me again. And yes, I'm very glad that you mentioned Monomeros as an example because it really is a perfect example of how these two countries, Colombia and Venezuela, need each other and depend on each other for their economic development. You know, this Venezuelan company has been responsible for Colombia's food production for decades by providing, like you said, fertilizers and other agrochemicals. And in exchange, the company also provides Venezuela with income, much needed income in this economic crisis. And I think you are absolutely correct when you say that the media and, you know, even politicians have made it seem like Venezuela and Colombia are mortal enemies, that our history is just fighting against each other, that there's nothing be between us but hate, that we have like these huge differences. And that's not true. I mean, I mean, of course, we do have our differences. And there's an endless discussion about whether the Arepa is Colombian or Venezuela. And I don't know, I mean, Arepas, for anyone who doesn't know, are a very traditional food in both countries. And yeah, I mean, of course, this is just a joke, but yeah, in reality, Venezuela and Colombia share so much history and so much culture. We have so much in common. And at some point, we were even part of one country, which is La Gran Colombia. La Gran Colombia, uh, you recall that it was created by Simón Bolívar after we won our independence from Spain. And Colombia, Ecuador, Panama, and Venezuela, we were all part of this giant country. And not just because we were neighbors, but because we were truly the same people with the same mixture of Andean and Caribbean culture. And even to this day, we still have many families in both countries, in Colombia and Venezuela, that continue to be a mixture of Colombian and Venezuela. So, you know, you, they, we have families that have a Colombian father and a, and a Venezuelan mother and cousins and brothers and sisters that live in both countries and they have uh, both nationalities. And, you know, this is especially true in cities across the very long border that we share. For example, uh, in my case, growing up in Maracaibo, which is in Occidente, very close to Colombia, 
it was so normal to live in a community where almost everyone had a connection to Colombia. Almost everyone will travel to Colombia on vacations to visit their families. And, you know, even more important, like I was saying before, Colombia and Venezuela depend a lot on each other for their economic well-being and development. Commercial trade between our countries has always been very important because it benefits both of our communities. For example, we have always exchanged food, medicine, uh, mechanical parts, construction material, cleaning products, uh, so many things. It is really a long list. Commercial trade benefits uh, our industries and our business owners. It creates many jobs. And I think that when commercial trade begins again at the end of September, when the border is going to finally reopen, we are going to see a lot of improvement in people's living conditions. And I think when it comes to the differences that we do have to mention that Colombia and Venezuela do have differences, but these are mainly political. You know, in 1998, Venezuela elected President Hugo Chavez, and we began this process of leaving behind neoliberal policies and building a more equal country with opportunities for everyone. Chavez was later joined by other progressive governments, you know, like Lula in Brazil, and Nestor Kirchner in Argentina, Evo Morales in Bolivia, and well, many others. And together they began seeking for South American integration. Colombia was one of the very few countries that were never part of this progressive movement. Instead, Colombia got closer to the United States and it became the main staging ground for U.S. destabilization in Latin America, especially against Venezuela. And this includes the ongoing conflict in Colombia, you know, this conflict that has led to so much violence and death in their society. And because we are neighbors, Venezuela has also been a direct victim of that violence. And, you know, right now, Latin American countries are changing their political preferences and choosing progressive governments. And that's what we saw in Colombia with Gustavo Petro being elected president. And I think this is because Latin American countries right now are experiencing poverty at levels unseen for generations. We are going through you know, economic and social crisis that are a result of these neoliberal governments that dominated the scene in the past few years. I truly believe that Venezuela and Colombia right now are in a unique position because they have always been like siblings. We have always been uh, countries that share so much history and culture. And our main difference was always political. And now with Gustavo Petro in power, I think this is a unique moment in history where we can once again become countries that uh, help each other and we can recover our economies and we can work together for peace and for integration in Latin America. You made a really interesting point when you talked about the way that politicians and the media have been feeding into these divisions. And unfortunately, we know that that's had a very real consequence for Venezuelans living outside of Venezuela. You know, recently we saw the new Colombian interior minister, Alfonso Prada, say that Colombians should ask Venezuelans to forgive them for the stigmatization and discrimination that they've been subjected to. Looking at this human element, what role does the recent effort to improve bilateral relations play in reversing these attitudes and rolling back some of this xenophobia that we've seen actually just throughout the entire continent towards Venezuelans? 
I think it's very important that we are now uh, sort of like acknowledging the discrimination that Venezuelan migrants have suffered in the past years. It is important that we recognize these issues so we can fix them and we can move forward. Um, and of course, this isn't something that only happened in, in Colombia. We saw many acts of discrimination and mistreatment across the continent in countries like Chile, Ecuador, Argentina. This discrimination, this xenophobia was almost completely fabricated by media outlets and the Venezuelan opposition. So the migration process in Venezuela began mostly in 2017 and in the years after that. That's when the U.S. sanctions began and we were left in this economic crisis and we were left in this situation where we either migrated or we stay in Venezuela and try to survive. So the Venezuelan opposition took advantage of this situation to create a campaign in which they promoted the idea of migrating and telling Venezuelans that they needed to leave the country but at the same time, they also criminalized Venezuelan migrants. Almost on a daily basis, you will turn on the TV or you, go, or you will go to social media and you will find some politicians, some opposition politicians like Julio Borges, among many others, talking about how Venezuelan migrants were a disease that was spreading through the continent. You know, he, they were calling us a play. And, you know, this anti-Chevista sector they, they really planned this. They First, they asked the United States for economic sanctions against Venezuela. Then they promoted migration as a solution to the economic crisis that they helped create. And then they promoted hate against Venezuelan migrants. And then they used the migration as a campaign against the Venezuelan government. And of course, neoliberal governments in these countries gladly joined the campaign because it meant they could blame everything on migrants from economic to security problems. You know, I told you before that I migrated too. I did it to be with my family in Ecuador and then I came back. And this was in 2020. The discrimination wasn't as bad as it was in the years before, but it was still there. So without going into details, you know, a Venezuelan migrant from what I saw, had to overcome a lot of hate, a lot of misconceptions that came from these hate campaigns that the Venezuelan opposition and media outlets promoted. And I think that, yes, now with Gustavo Petro in Colombia and with the two countries finally reestablishing diplomatic ties and normalizing commercial trade and opening the border, I think we'll definitely see an improvement for migrant communities from both countries because we're going to see them working together, helping each other. We will enjoy better living conditions. And I think that's going to put a stop to a lot of this past mistreatment that Venezuelan migrants suffer. Yeah, I think that that is something that could happen. It, it, it will happen, I believe. Yeah, I certainly think so too. I think just the closer proximity, the fact that the border will be open, there will be more exchange of culture, of politics, of experiences will help to help to begin to heal those wounds and to begin to roll back some of those attitudes that have been, Frank, as you said, cultivated. My final question is about the relationship and the role of the United States in all of this. You know, it seems every time that a Democrat is in office, we here in Latin America get the same speech. Biden loves talking about how Latin America is not the backyard, and instead it's the front yard, as if that's any better. But we know that fundamentally, U.S. imperialism has hardly changed. 
only its methods of domination change. So recently we saw Biden's top Latin America advisor, Juan Gonzalez, say something that I thought was actually quite illuminating, but didn't get a lot of attention. He told Colombian media, quote, 40 years ago, the United States would have done everything possible to prevent the election of Gustavo Petro. And once in power, it would have done almost everything possible to sabotage his government, end quote. And, you know, Gonzalez was trying to communicate that U.S. policy under Biden was no longer stuck in a Cold War mentality. But like I said, we here in the trenches, those of us resisting U.S. imperialism, we know that the U.S. commitment and respect for sovereignty is paper thin. One need only look at Biden's policy towards Venezuela to understand that. So despite Gonzalez's claims, we know that the U.S. isn't just going to let its closest ally in the region go. What can we expect from the U.S. with regard to Petro? And what does it mean for the region? Yeah, you know, I, I like to imagine the absolute commotion that went inside the U.S. government once Gustavo Petro became president of Colombia. You know, I think people don't, don't think about it enough because this is such a huge setback for U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. It means that the U.S. has lost its main ally. And, you know, President Petro also made it very clear that he will not support the so-called interim government of Juan Guaido. He said that Guaido is an imaginary president, which is completely true. Um, so, and obviously, as I said before, Colombia has been the main staging ground for U.S. destabilization in Latin America, especially against Venezuela for decades. And now it seems that they have lost that ground. And this became even more evident when Gustavo Petro and President Nicolás Maduro immediately announced that they would reestablish diplomatic relations. And more importantly, they decided to begin working together for peace and security. Colombia has a years-long conflict that continues causing death and inequalities in the country, and that also affects Venezuela. So I'm, I'm not surprised that the United States is trying to make sure that they can continue having an influence in Colombia because peace is not an option for U.S. interests. The U.S. needs this conflict in Colombia, needs this war in Colombia to continue because it provides a cover for their aggressions against Venezuela and it even provides a cover for drug trafficking. So I think this... These U.S. officials that are visiting Colombia or talking about Colombia, uh, yeah, they are trying to secure that the U.S. remains an important influence in Colombia and that the U.S. continues using Colombia to destabilize the region and sabotage peace. Because, you know, peace in Colombia means that integration in Latin America could be achieved a lot sooner. And that's something that the U.S. definitely doesn't want. And, you know, if for some reason Gustavo Petro, which I think is going to happen, if Gustavo Petro remains closer to the rest of the Latin American left and decides to truly uh, separate itself from the United States, and if he also maintains his promise of finally achieving peace in Colombia, then I think the U.S. might try its usual methods of sabotaging the Colombian government, maybe, you know, interfering in Colombians' pla plans for peace and economic development. And, yeah, you were saying that about the top Latin American advisor for U.S. President Joe Biden, he admitted that they have no problem with that because, after all, the U.S. has a long history of interfering in Latin American issues you know, from coups to invasions and, you know, so, yeah, I think 
there's a possibility that the U.S. might began treating Colombia the way it had treated Venezuela before. And that's where people who are listening to this program come in. I think it's really important that we keep paying attention, that we watch out for destabilization efforts, and that we contribute to the resistance, no matter where we are, to U.S. imperialism. Thank you so much, Andrina. As always, it's been great talking to you and, and hearing your analysis. Really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much, Jose Luis. Colombia y Venezuela nos reencontramos en paz, en amor, en libertad, viendo al futuro. In our next segment, we will speak with Enrique Costa, a researcher with the Center for Border Research and Studies, an initiative that focuses on the study of the economic, political, military, social, cultural, and environmental reality in the Colombian-Venezuelan border area. Welcome to the program. You have commented that the break in diplomatic relations between Venezuela and Colombia was a tragedy. And for the time being, things are looking quite good. But the bilateral relationship has always suffered from ups and downs. What measures should be taken to prevent a new breakdown of bilateral relations in order to avoid a new tragedy? Yes, the breakdown of relations was a tragedy. It was a tragedy for the two peoples who not only share economic ties, but also share many things. They share family ties, they share ethnic ties, they share culture, and they also share problems. Problems that are shared issues in the territory. The breakdown of relations was tragic because of all of this. But fundamentally, because it deepened the illegal venues of accumulation through the illegal economy, these actors benefited the most. And they accumulated large amounts of capital through smuggling, human trafficking, of the illegal extraction of all kinds of resources, mainly drug trafficking. Something that I believe is fundamental for relations to be more stable is, first of all, I would say avoiding what they call microphone diplomacy. In other words, if one of the country's leaders said one thing, then the other answered immediately, and because of political rhetoric, relations were broken. So to avoid this and have more stable relations, diplomacy must follow the correct course and through the correct channels. And that would be one point. The other would be to build spaces for conflict resolution in the territory itself and with the authorities and communities in the border. In the conflict resolution of border problems, it is necessary to give a voice and a vote to the local authorities. And that the communities of the border territories themselves, who are the ones who know and really experience the problems, can intervene in the solution of the problems of the territories. You see, sometimes states do not have clear policies on how to handle border problems. But we've realized that there's no clear policy on border security, on the economy of the border. So they're unfamiliar with the border, and they don't know the various actors who make life on the border. It's necessary to give more voice to the actors on the border, to the border communities themselves, that binational relations proceed in a better and more stable fashion. Some time ago, for example, on the part of Venezuela, there was a kind of commission, military in this case, that was in charge and that had the possibility and had the power to be able to solve some minor conflicts that occurred on the border. I believe that power must be given back at certain instances so that territorial conflicts, political conflicts, and the whole series of conflicts that can occur in a border territory can be resolved. The restoration of diplomatic relations is undoubtedly an important step, but it is just that, a first step. You mentioned a series of problems, challenges, that still have to be overcome. So that leads me to ask, is there a real possibility of regional integration, the type that so many have dreamed of, particularly between Venezuela and Colombia? 
being peoples that share history, culture, and economic ties? Lo que yo he visto es que de parte de Venezuela ha habido una gran voluntad para esas instancias de integración regional. What I have seen is that on the part of Venezuela, there has been a strong willingness to create spaces for regional integration. In fact, we know that there have been great experiences like UNASUR, the name perhaps the most important one. Now, in the case of Colombia, they previously had a different policy regarding regional integration. I'm confident that President Petro's international and regional relations policy, at least what we're seeing now at first, is going to be far different from what was traditionally seen from the Colombian state in the past. That is because in the case of Colombia, there was a big problem. All international relations policy and regional integration policies were aligned with that of the United States. They were aligned with the interests of the United States. Which means that when it came to Colombia and previous regional integration efforts, their participation was, at the very least, nil. And in the worst case scenario, they engaged in efforts to sabotage any regional integration effort. So I think about it as disengagement. Petro needs to distance himself from this policy of alignment with the United States on the issue of regional integration and create their own policy, wield their own sovereignty, to conduct relations with other countries in a sovereign way. I believe that there are now good conditions for the development of a regional integration policy that covers South America and the whole of the continent. I think we have to go back to proposals like UNASUR, try to rescue it. That's why we're really celebrating the arrival of Petro and this shift in policy in binational and regional relations. This will have implications for the geopolitical configurations of our America. Petro has begun to establish that relationship, establishing diplomatic relations with the opening of embassies and consulates, for example. A few days ago, the Colombian ambassador to Venezuela, Armando Benedetti, officially delivered his letter to President Maduro. The Venezuelan ambassador to Colombia, Felix Plasencia, has done the same. But, of course, a new moment in bilateral relations does not end with the reestablishment of diplomatic relations. There are a number of problems to be solved, and we must propose, plan, true regional integration plans. We must involve not only the states, but also social movements and communities and all of those plans. Yes, without a doubt. And that brings me to my next question. We know due to the long history of bilateral trade, the break in diplomatic relations was a very, very strong economic blow. But it seems to me that a lot of the discussion that is taking place now, at least what is being transmitted through the media, focuses too much on the commercial aspect and not the human aspect or the opinions of the people from the communities. For example, I know that there's some concern among agricultural producers in Venezuela who doubt whether they'll be able to compete with Colombian production. So how is that balance achieved? Yes, they must attend to this economic aspect because there is an economic crisis. This can help. But what steps must be taken so that the restoration of diplomatic ties can also bring well-being to the people of both countries? That is not only for the benefit of powerful groups and therefore the benefits actually reach communities on both sides of the border. Sin duda, hay una, creo que hay una gran brecha o una mediana brecha al menos entre la capacidad productiva. Without a doubt, I believe that there's a large gap, or a medium gap at least, between the productive capacity of the countryside in Colombia versus Venezuela. This gap can be compensated with development in Venezuela and other aspects. For example, its energy potential. I say potential 
because we know that Venezuela's energy potential was somewhat slowed down by the blockade against Venezuela. But we see that Venezuela now has experienced a slight recovery. We should return to energy exchange projects that had already been previously considered, such as the gas pipeline. So yes, without a doubt, there is a big gap there. But there are other productive areas that can help balance things out. Until a few years ago, for example, Colombia had a large capacity to export products to a greater or lesser extent. This was affected by free trade agreements. However, as we said, this gap between Colombia and Venezuela with respect to agriculture can be reduced if agreements are struck. For example, an economic exchange that also brings exchanges of technology, experience in agricultural production, developing more collaborative form of economic relations, and above all, if small and medium producers are integrated into these plans. In other words, it is the responsibility of the states that their economic integration policies involve small producers. In products such as coffee and cocoa, for example, Venezuela has good seeds, high-quality seeds. Colombia has obviously managed to enter the world economy with products like these. If there is a collaborative relationship between the two states, the potential for development is going to be very great. Venezuela and Colombia are going to have a lot to offer in exchange of technology, energy, and agriculture, and could turn the region into a great power in these areas. But how can we ensure that wealth reaches communities? Because I confess that it worries me to see how excited the old economic actors are. So what can be done to ensure that wealth reaches the people? Bueno, in the case of Colombia, we're seeing the tension between the big economic groups. Well, in the case of Colombia, we're already seeing the tension coming from the large economic groups and the plans that the government has proposed to attend to historically high inequality. President Petro has proposed some subsidies, but to achieve this, he's proposed a tax reform. He's going to charge more taxes on the big producers and the large economic groups. Without a doubt, this is where the tension lies. The tax reform that Petro is carrying out is already being opposed by some within powerful economic groups. But we trust that Petro will be able to keep his promise to the Colombian people and that a large part of the wealth that is being accumulated will actually reach the people through subsidies. A copy of this tax policy would need to be created at the borders too, among those that make a living on the border, in such a way that part of that income can reach the people and solve the problems of the people on the border. As a last question, we know that one of the problems in the border area is the presence, on one side, of groups linked to organized crime, and on the other, of irregular armed actors. To what extent does the restoration of diplomatic relations help on this issue of violence, which we know later produces instability and irregular trade, etc.? And what role does U.S. imperialism play in this element of the situation on the border? We know that in many instances, in the end, when it comes to internal security, particularly in the case of Colombia, the U.S. military forces have a lot of weight. Sí, eso es quizá uno de los nodos centrales de la de los problemas fronterizos. Yes, that is perhaps one of the central pillars of the problems at the border. Since 1999, with the help of the U.S., an entire paramilitary bloc was created on the border, a counterinsurgency bloc that was part of its strategy to stop the advance of this. This idea of a greater homeland and of socialism that was developing in Venezuela, and the other element was the significant armed confrontation of the insurgency with the Colombian state, which caused a large part of the insurgency to withdraw toward the border regions. 
So all these elements, if we had smuggling to this, which ultimately accumulates capital through a series of illegal economies and needs small armies to protect all these resources, what we see is that chaos develops. A series of armed actors on the border that make the border a very dangerous place. Very dangerous, especially for the border population. In this context of militarization of the border by armed groups, those who are ultimately the losers in this are the border communities. I think Petro's policy is being correct. One of the main pillars of his policy is to enter into a peace agreement with all the armed organizations. And a large part of these organizations are located in border territories. Not only the one between Venezuela and Colombia, but also Ecuador and Colombia. So the plan has to be designed together with the Venezuelan state. The Colombian state has to include within its overall peace policy the specific policy of peace on the border. This policy, obviously, must be designed and executed alongside the Venezuelan state. And I say it again, they must include the commitments and the actors, including the armed actors, in the border region. It's necessary to create this plan for peace for the border. I think there's a good environment to develop a border peace policy right now. I think it's being contemplated within the entire peace strategy that Colombia is carrying out. And Venezuela has always accompanied the peace process that have taken place in these territories. As we've said, we must include all of the actors that are part of this conflict and the victims who are the communities. I think we should also add to this. With the resumption of legal bilateral trade, a lot of capital will be taken from illegal economies. And if capital is taken from illegal economies, it also takes some strength away from all the armed actors involved who accumulate this capital. So it has to be a comprehensive policy involving economic aspects, military aspects, social and cultural aspects. As I said, I think this is a good environment to establish peace. I hope so. Well, thank you very much for your time. I want to give you an opportunity to share with the audience one last message, something that perhaps you think is important to highlight. Sí, bueno, quiero compartir con todos los los que nos escuchan que realmente como decíamos desde el principio la Yes, I want to share with everyone who's listening to us that as we talked about at the beginning, the tragedy of the closing of bilateral relations really implied very little development for the communities. For both countries, but I believe that this new moment that is opening promises success and development for the two countries. I believe that the development models of Colombia and Venezuela have more in common at this moment than they did in the past. So let's put effort into it. We need the effort of everyone, of the communities, and I believe that not only for Colombia and Venezuela, but for other countries, new winds are blowing in Latin America. Let's put it this way. There is a new progressive wave in America that I think will benefit the people. Without a doubt. I believe that it is our responsibility to accompany and support this effort throughout Latin America. Thank you. We greatly appreciate your analysis, your time, and we hope we can continue talking and analyzing these issues, because as we know, it will be something that will continue to develop over time. I must confess that after some of Petro's comments about Venezuela on the campaign trail, I had my doubts about his commitment to restoring the bilateral relationship, but I have been pleasantly surprised. Thus far, his government has been very encouraging. As we explored in today's episode, the real test will be the extent to which the improved bilateral relationship 
will deliver real material benefits to the Venezuelan and Colombian working class and campesinos. That's our program for today. Thank you for joining us. Remember, our underground work is 100% funded by readers and listeners. Be sure to visit us at venezuelanalysis.com for regular news and analysis on all things Venezuela. We're also everywhere on social media. If you enjoyed the program, please share it with your friends and leave us a review if you can. It really helps us out. We'll end today's episode with a song by Carmen Julia, En Una Sola Bandera, a song dedicated to the unity of the peoples liberated by Simón Bolívar. Hasta la victoria, siempre. <laughs>